Welcome to Every Quarter, the voice of Andover, Phillips Academy's official podcast where we share the compelling stories and ideas of our faculty, alumni, students, and distinguished campus guests. Our monthly show features candid conversations on current events, academia, and Andover's connection to important matters happening around the world. If you like what we do, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, and while you're there, leave us a review, comment, and rating. Your feedback helps promote every quarter and helps us tell the type of stories you want to hear. You may not recognize the name Peter Chermayev, but if you've ever lived in or visited Boston, you've probably experienced his work. Have you ever been to the Boston Aquarium and walked the spiral ramp along the central tank? Did you ride the T to get there and wonder why each line is colored the way it is? Well, Peter designed both of these Bay State projects and are just two of the topics he gets into on this very special episode of Every Quarter. He's joined by his niece, filmmaker Maro Tremeyev, class of 1980, and they discuss Peter's early years at Andover, his circuitous career path, and how he became the preeminent aquarium architect in the world. Talk a little bit, I mean, yeah. if, if people, if someone comes up to you now or you're, you're standing up, you know, in front of the all school meeting, do you identify yourself as an architect yes. fully? Yeah, yes. I mean, describe yes. when, when did that, that kind of personal ownership come and describe a little bit about the importance for you at the time, but also for so many of architecture as a way of communicating? Well, I have to say it happened relatively quickly because in 1962, when I was making and failing to complete my little film for J.M. Kaplan and the New School for Social Research who provided me with a small grant, I was having a very hard time getting that film done a friend who was a former student of Serge, your grandfather, came to me and said, Peter, let's start an architectural firm, a design firm. And I said, Paul, I'm, I'm now not really pursuing architecture. I'm, I'm moving toward documentary filmmaking or filmmaking of some kind. And he said, well, you can do that at the same time as we can have a firm in which you, we do architecture and we do exhibits and we do many different kinds of things, industrial design, graphic design. You can still make films if you want to. And I thought about it and said, no, no, thank you very much. And then about a month later, this was now the summer of 62, I went to the Boston Zoo by myself to see the director of the zoo, a man named Walter Stone. His office was in the basement of the Lion House. <laughs> I had no appointment, I went in to see him. And I said, Mr. Stone, you don't know me, and I'm rudely introducing myself without warning, but I want to interest you in a group I represent. A bunch of us are thinking of starting a multidisciplinary firm and it occurred to me that your zoo would be a superb way for us to begin if you would be interested to retain us for almost no fee to undertake a conceptual study and do a master plan to redo your zoo, which clearly is in serious need. 
And he looked at me and said, uh, what, who are you to tell me that? You are correct, this place is a disaster, but who are you to tell me that? And I said, well, I would like to show you who we are if you would take an hour or two and come to my little film studio in Harvard Square and meet with several of us and see who we are with a slide presentation. I'll show you a bunch of slides. The slide presentation comes back. <laughs> <laughs> well, he But then you created one of, the, one of the greatest firms. You know. Well, I don't know what we did, it, but he, it, he came. You're, he, he, he came you're continually <laughs> throwing yourself under the bus and no, not giving no, yourself no. credit for I doing will, a lot will, of really interesting things. Well, I'll come to that if you like, but I... <laughs> I want you to know this story because I think it answers your question. He came, he was d intrigued. He said, you've persuaded me that you could turn my zoo around. There's only one problem. I have no money and no political clout. I have no opportunity to turn around the mess I'm in. The Metropolitan District Commission is a disaster. I'd be wasting your time, but I'm going to introduce you to a friend of mine a man from Detroit, he's a herpetologist, reptile man, and he's here to start a new aquarium for the city of Boston. And they're interviewing architects two weeks from now. I think he should include you. Well, that happened. Walter introduced me to Lee Finneran, and Lee Finneran and I got drunk together in a bar. I don't know if and this is a good podcast story. This is a good <laughs> podcast story. It's the truth. <laughs> we stayed up all night talking, and he decided he wanted to have us, not me, us, our group, Was it formally interviewed. known then as Cambridge 7? No, no. We printed that letterhead and gave it that name the night before our interview. The ink was wet when we delivered our letter the next morning at the interview, that after that, two weeks after first learning of the project. And we gave him a little, gave the board of that institution a presentation and they chose us. And we started a firm. We called it Cambridge Seven Associates and we called it an architectural firm, though it included architects, graphic designers, industrial designers, urban designers, and, and above all, exhibit ideas, exhibit designers. So we started. And when we got that job and that contract, and I had to start working with engineers who I'd been trained to understand from school, but had never worked with, because I'd never spent any time doing any architecture, I was in charge of this project, but I had senior architects, two partners who were 10 years older than me who were architects. Another two who are three or five years older than me as architects, and my brother and Tom Geismar as the two other partners. We're seven, five architects and two graphic designers. And we had an architectural commission of some distinction. So the Boston Aquarium was in fact your first commission? Building of any kind. Your first building of any kind. And it's so astounding. I went two weeks ago and went through that circular tank mm. and it's just, it stays as ever busy and appreciated as it was the day you built it. I mean, Well, that's always wonderful to hear and know, but I have to say it right away 
that an institution like that starts with something, but it depends on a lot of wonderful people to continue to grow and mature and become distinguished, ultimately. It's now 50 years old. This summer, this coming summer, will be its 50th anniversary. And over those decades, it has matured into a superb institution. It's expanded. There have been many changes that we did for the first 20 years or more, 25, 30 years, we did expansion projects. But others have worked on it since. It's been added to, it's been lovingly caressed. It's now doing work outside the building in places like the North Atlantic where they look after the whales, the, the right whale in particular, and other mam marine mammals who are stranded and do research and so on. It's an internationally distinguished institution. But it's, it's, it's funny in thinking, you know, you, your ties to, to Boston, I mean, now, now you actually reside in the town of Andover, but you've been working in Boston. Your firm is called Cambridge 7. Your first commission is the aquarium. But you actually went on, I mean, after naming the firm Cambridge 7, to, to actually distinguish yourself in Boston with other really great projects. I mean, it just sort of, it must have been a, a bit of a springboard that, that oh, size was. of a project. It was, it was. We were... Well, like, we, we were some of the other... Well, some of the other things that came about that were architectural projects, some of them purely architectural projects, included shopping centers and schools and libraries. And I wasn't as interested in those, and most of them were done by my partners. We, got, we were asked to do the Boston Children's Museum, and that was exciting. I had a small role in it. My other partners did more of it. Projects that I had a, a bigger role in that were exciting in Boston included in about 1965, we were asked to take on the redesign, the environmental design of the MBTA, the transit system. And that blew my mind as, a, as an incredible opportunity and honor, and I played a larger role in that, together with two of my partners also, Paul Dietrich uh, and Terry Rankin and Lou Bakanowski. We all got involved in it, and Ivan and Tom got heavily involved in it because of the graphics. And we found... The black tea that's the still... The Yeah, we found today. we could rename the system with a simpler name, <clears throat> we chose the T because it was not only a good image, but a good name, because it suggested transport, transit, transportation, all kinds of tunnel, all kinds of things that had to do with... Big T words. ...the subject. And we could be proud of the fact that it wasn't even original. We stole it from Stockholm, mm -hmm. where they had a system already with a T called the Tunnelbana. But it was so right, we presented it to the board of directors of the MBTA as if we had invented it. But giving credit to Stockholm. For them, it was new. They said, oh, it's a good idea. Let's do it. And then we color-coded the lines. I had the great fun in my little office in Cambridge of picking up magic markers with a map and saying to myself, well, let's color-code the lines. And I chose red because of Harvard. It was the terminus of the Harvard-Ashmont line. And that meant Harvard was identified with it. Let's call it the red line. 
The blue line was obvious because it was the one that went up on the North Shore along the shore. The green line was obvious because of the emerald necklace, Olmsted's park system that, that the green line goes through in many branches, A, B, C, D, E branches. And then the orange line came up. I picked up a magic marker and chose the orange line because I didn't know what else to do. It was arbitrary. And that went through Roxbury up into Boston. Those, those simple things that, that I had the privilege of doing with my partners. Lou Bakanowski designed a new train. It wasn't built, but it was a brilliant design for a train, a new transit car for the red line. We designed it. It was priced 10% over the standard Pullman standard car. And so it was too expensive. It wasn't possible. It wasn't built. But the excitement of doing that and of rethinking station design and affecting the lives of millions of people or, you know, tens of thousands of people every day using the transit system and making it all accessible and visible and understandable, doing maps that people could understand and read for strangers arriving in Boston for the first time to see a map they could decipher and understand and see signs on the street which, oh, that's clearly that sign tells me the red line is there. Go down inside and there you are. That affected people's lives in huge ways, and it was exciting to do. Tell me a little bit about when you first came to Andover and uh, when that was and what it looked like for you at that time. Well, it goes back a long way, 69 years ago. When I first arrived at Andover, it was the fall of 1949, and I think, as I recall, I was dropped off by my parents. But from then on, for most of my time here, I was using the train from Chicago, to and from Chicago, an overnight train, the New England States or the Owl. And it was far away and quite, you might say, a transforming experience because I was a little guy. I was 13 years old and I, you know, was not sure what might be in store for me. So when I first arrived, I think I remember most of all being, you might say, uncomfortable just because it was all new but okay for one reason. My big brother was here. Your father. He was a senior living in Foxcroft, just up there behind the Addison. And I remember, for example, coming <laughs> to visit him. And because in those days there was a terrific tradition of prepping which may have vanished in the inter intervening de decades. What I recall is being put in a blanket and thrown in the air. And the general sense of it was, this was hugely dangerous, that I might come crashing on the ground, <clears throat> but that my big brother was making sure that did not happen. Was he, doing, was he being a good protector? He was being a good protector. And I 
went flying in the air and did all kinds of spins and somersaults, landing in a blanket held by about eight or ten seniors. And I also carried bags. I have a feeling that's not done anymore. <laughs> it sounds a little risky. Well, in those days it was a major tradition. And it was okay. I, I had a good time doing it. There was, a, in my senior year, a play written by a, a, a good friend, a guy who became a good friend in my class named Bill Kaufman. And he wrote a, a senior class play called Mother Like the Trees. Which had to do with, you know, why did I go to Andover? Right? Yeah. And among other things in that play, there was a scene in which I played the role that I remembered from my first week here the little kid, the prep. Because I was still a little kid. In my senior year, I was only five foot four. And so I could play that role. And what that meant was carrying a suitcase, racing on stage, and promptly falling down as a laugh, you know, routine, with the bag opening up and everything flying across the stage. That was my great moment. Sounds very vaudeville. <laughs> it was a bit vaudeville. <laughs> but it was fun. And the great thing about Andover then and today, mm. you know, and I think about you and Dad also being... Fees Award recipients, right? Is that <clears throat> there was a a focus and a creative inspiration within the classes and within the, within the faculty, and do you feel that you began to have um, a continuance? I will say that came from the family, from from your own father, from Serge. Yes and no. The yes and here? no. Yes and no. I felt comfortable. I felt comfortable with the arts. I was immersed in all of that, of course, since childhood. And Ivan was quite already far along as an artist by the time of his senior year. When I came here, I was, you might say, comfortable with the visual arts, but not really focused on it. I was made at home because there was a certain welcoming spirit in the place. Bart Hayes, the head of the Addison Gallery, was very welcoming. Pat Morgan and his wife, Maud Morgan, were fabulous people. Pat taught painting. Maud made paintings and became a major, you might say, presence in the Boston area over the following decades. And Pat was a wonderful teacher, and I liked him a lot, but I didn't relate to it. I wasn't, I wasn't painting. I was just comfortable surrounded by it. And I was encouraged to try anything I wanted to try, which is a huge part of being here. But it didn't, it didn't grab me the way it did others. There was a classmate who directed that senior class play who was brilliant. He was a painter, he could do anything. He was a writer, he was a, a super smart scholar. And he had a confidence at the age of 14 when we started that was extraordinary. He was a day student from Haverhill, Massachusetts, a devout Catholic. His name was John Rattay. He was such a memory. 
Well, no, I don't have such a memory. Actually, I have had difficulty remembering most of my classmates, but I will not forget John Ratte because he was a superstar and a wonderful guy who I remember thinking was along the lines of my father's favorite student at the Institute of Design in Chicago, who you knew, knew or know well about, Robert Brownjohn, who Serge always described. Dad's partner. First, well, first he, was, uh, he was my, my brother's first partner, your father's first partner, but above all, he was my father's, our father's star student his favorite student at the Institute of Design in Chicago, who was just plain talented in every way. But somehow you became very talented in every way. No, you're, I think no. you're playing it down. That, well, you know, I, it, it must came, have started for you. It started, soon. yes, it did start here. And as I'm going to uh, mention in my remarks tonight and tomorrow, there was a key person in that for me, beyond the ones I've already mentioned. It was a, a guy who was then perhaps only about 25 who had just arrived with his wife. They were newly or recently married. His name was Diz Bensley and his wife, Audrey Bensley, were proctors in Will Hall where I lived my junior year, the first year. They just were down the hall in a room of their own, just three or four doors down. And they made me feel comfortable and protected in another way. They were still there when I, when I came in 1980, um, 78, 80. Right. Well, Sasha was so here. So 49, too. that's 30 years. And their, and their kids were also um, around or uh, had been know, through the school. Coming at that time. So right. yes, they were amazing, totally amazing. Well, Diz for me was an important guy. He, he first of all, bowled me over when I was at Will Hall, when just for fun, in the late evening, he would draw Disney characters. He was called Diz because he made cells for Walt Disney before he came to teach at Andover. He was doing cell animation. So he could draw Donald Duck doing anything or Mickey Mouse doing anything and do it just like an angel fluidly. And it was great fun. And what I gradually learned was that this extraordinary, lighthearted, unpretentious guy was really first and foremost a photographer and then, an, you might say, a stimulant to people like me who were thinking about whatever it might be that had to do with visual language. And that's what he became over the years. And I like to think of Andover in, in terms, not of art, but of visual studies. Because Diz represented that for me almost more than anyone else. He was preoccupied with helping people to see and to communicate while, you might say, using visual language. And that was important to me all through my four years, 
without my really knowing how or why or how, what I was going to do with it. But it, it caught my fancy and attention. And but in that's the, in the, the most important thing, is to, is to be inspired yeah. when you're still very young and then you try, and you try to sort out how that's going to develop. I'm talking a little yep. bit about how yep. that did develop for you, well, obviously, it, into it the developed, world of architecture. Well, it developed for me at Harvard while I was in college because I started doing different things that I hadn't done before. <clears throat> and one of the things I did, which I think came up toward the end of college and also in part while I was in graduate school, was the notion that visual language was fundamental and missing in most curricula, including Harvard's at the time. This was before the Visual and Environmental Studies Department was born at Harvard. <clears throat> and what I had realized that it was already germinating and becoming quite advanced at this little preschool or pre-college place that Andover was way ahead of most schools in the country in terms of visual studies. So I came back here and spent time with Diz and the technical assistant he had at the uh, lab, the, the audiovisual lab that he was running, a man named Lolo Hobausch, who came from Hungary and was the technical support for Diz in doing audiovisual things with the students, which had not been happening when I was in school here, but was then happening five or six years later. And they were developing a whole vocabulary of visual language in the school and making what they called, and I have since called, slide tapes, in which a carousel projector with 80 slides could be put together by copying things out of books or magazines or what have you, making your own visual, you might say, essay, writing some script, narrating it or you know, building other soundtracks, and making a piece on a complicated subject, such as American history or what have you. And they were doing that and already introducing it to people in the other faculty departments. In other words, a history teacher was getting a slide tape that was being made on a particular subject, like the Civil War, and having it be part of what they use as a tool of teaching. Well, I found that fascinating and came back from Harvard and did some experimenting of my own. And I even went out at Diz's behest. I don't remember how it was done, or how, if he must have raised some money to pay my travel expenses. But I went out to Oakland, California, to the high school, the public high school, and met with about 12 teachers to show them this whole idea, how to make slide tapes as a tool of their curriculum. And they took to it, and they were excited about it. And I don't know how, if it lasted or, or if it carried on after that. But for a while, they were doing it. And that was exciting. And I found that, you might say, a stimulus to what I was doing and thinking about as I started getting into architecture. And the reality for me was that all of that held in my consciousness 
right through college and graduate school, even though encouraged by your grandfather, my father, who was encouraging Ivan and me to do anything we damn well wanted, there was a driving force behind it all for me to become an architect. And I... I can see how I, that would happen. <laughs> <laughs> might have happened. Yeah. He was strong-minded, to say the least. But he also wasn't demanding. And when I told him I wanted to make movies or do something else and went out and made a little movie, in my last year in graduate school, I made a short film that you've seen, I think, Orange and Blue, a little fantasy about bouncing balls. And I did that on the sly. I didn't tell the old man that I was doing it. I spent a gigantic budget of $3,000, which I had begged, borrowed, and stolen to make this little film. And That's a lot of money back then. It, mean, it seemed like a lot of money at the time. It didn't turn out to be because of mixing soundtracks and things like that. But it anyway was fun. I had more fun doing that than I'd ever had drawing up buildings in school. And then I applied for a grant from the New School for Social Research from a man I'd gotten to know through my roommate. It was his father in, in New York, a man named Kaplan. And, and I went to him and asked him for some money and asked him if he would help me make a little film. And I was thinking about doing that while I was getting a master's degree in architecture. So I was a bit of an ambivalent architect. Well, for an ambivalent architect, you went uh, pretty, pretty far. <laughs> <laughs> it seems that in architecture, one of the most exciting things, because <clears throat> you went on to do so many you know, large buildings, beautiful other aquariums here and around the world, that the, the knowledge of knowing that what you build is inhabited. People are coming in, they're, they're having an experience, they're milling out. How's the best way for them to move something through something? Hmm. That must just have be so rewarding. Cause I, it is. It's hugely rewarding. I have to say that, that public buildings are a great enticement. From I was spoiled from day one with the New England Aquarium, but dealing with public experience has been a driving force for me and one of the reasons that I actually became proud to call myself an architect because in the best sense of the word architect one is really making places for people and when you maximize the experience and design a building as an experience rather than as a building form but as a place to be experienced both inside and outside that's when the word architecture takes on greatest nobility and meaning for me. And it was incredibly exciting to move on from one aquarium to other public aquariums and find that that building type was immensely appealing and also a bit timeless. You know, when, when uh, you study or think about the audience that goes to public aquariums, you realize that it is a full cross-section of society. People with minimal education and maximum education enjoy aquariums. 
because we're all drawn. It's very leveling, yeah. It's very leveling to be exposed to animals, to other forms of life. One of my heroes in this world, E.O. Wilson, wrote a wonderful book called Biophilia. I recommend it to anybody I see anytime. <laughs> and that love of life, he describes as the innate, you might say, tendency of human beings to be drawn to other forms of life like moths to a porch light. In other words, we are innately drawn with curiosity and wonder to look at other forms of life or to get close to them if we can. And a public aquarium or a zoo is one way of doing that. Documentary filmmaking is another, by the way. But I found it wonderful to have a chance to do that with countless different subject areas in varying ways that have to do with, with aquariums and water, of course, but it also became partly terrestrial. And today, I mean, you're still working on a huge, new, exciting aquarium that we hope all gets built. But what, what are the, I mean, how many aquariums in the end of, of, of the beginning, I should say, not the end, beginning with Boston, how many, how many aquariums did you go on to build? And also, I think that there's a, a kind of a, a knowledge, not just of, of what the building is, but a, but a deep knowledge of, of the sea and of, the, of marine life and the survival of marine life inside of these facilities as opposed to their natural habitats is something well, you had to learn a lot about. I had to learn a lot about, but I hasten to add that doing that building type requires a huge number of specialists. And those specialists, for me, are, are paramount and always under-recognized. The people who really know in depth what it takes to keep animals alive in the water. What's called life support systems is a technical term for water treatment systems. And some animals are very tough and resilient and others are very delicate. And if the pH or the temperature is just a little bit off, they die. Hence and we're if, now struggling on the planet as we speak as the right, temperatures well, change. Yes, the whole world is in jeopardy because of, of our abuses of it. But the specialists in animal care, the one the the hortic the uh, uh, marine biologists and the specialists, even herpetologists, as like I started with that reptile guy, and the ichthyologists, the, the ones who deal with only with fishes. But there are very many people who get into, you know, microscopic life and planktonic life, and all of these specialists are part of what one deals with to make a good aquarium these days. And I cannot tell you uh, enough about the collaborative nature of what I've been doing. And I feel that, you know, if, if you think about circling back to being at Andover or the <clears throat> Maker's Lab or the, where the, the idea of working with other people and not seeing that as a threat but seeing that as the greatest advantage is partnerships, yeah. is, 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 is basically a key to everybody's future, to, in my mind. I mean, films are made with so many people, obviously. Exactly. No, I, I but couldn't, I, but I couldn't agree more. But yeah. after you 
talk just a little bit about, so you went on to do Tennessee. Well, and I mean, how no, many? The next one, the major one, was Baltimore, which became the National Aquarium in Baltimore. And then the next major one was in Osaka in Japan. A tide pool. Well, it was a big aquarium, which came about because a man who was the head of city planning for the port of Osaka came to Baltimore, liked what he saw, asked to meet with me, and then invited me to come to Japan. And when I went to Japan to undertake a major aquarium that he wanted to be comparable to or somewhat akin to what had happened in Baltimore and Boston, he said a most amazing thing. I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'm not going to tell you what we want you to do. But I would ask you to consider one idea only as a starting point. Put people in the ocean. Give them an experience that makes them feel part of it. We went to work collectively, the design team, including a man named Peter Soligub and a man named uh, Chris Choa, Frank Zaremba, a whole group of colleagues. We went to work on that premise and we came up with the idea of making a maze in the ocean, a walking experience through channels of air you might say, enveloped by walls of acrylic. So that as you looked through this maze, you would see from a water layer to an air layer, to another water layer, to another air layer. And you would see the people through those layers, walking through with the animals in between. So that was our response to Morita and his directive, please put the people in the place. He ended up calling it the Cayucan. He was very proud of it. He was excited about it. He gave us carte blanche and a good budget and a fantastic builder. And we had a fantastic team of animal people, animal collectors, water treatment specialists. We transferred technology from the US to Japan. It was a collaborative of the most exciting kind and in only four years, actually, no, two years and nine months after we got the contract, we opened to the public. It was less than three years with the largest aquarium in Japan. And it cost quite a lot, well, but, it was, but they had the budget. They, they were willing. Well, aquarium. And that, that, was, that was an incredibly exciting third aquarium. After that, we came back to the US and two aquariums followed soon thereafter, only two years later. One was in Tennessee, in Chattanooga, the only aquarium at that point devoted exclusively to fresh water. And that was an exciting adventure of its own because when we got to Tennessee, they expected us to make a place that would bring the tropics and exciting, you know, colorful fish to the inner, you know, Tennessee Valley. And the Tennessee River has 
you know, limited major fish in it, trout and bass. But we said, no, let's not bring salt water here. Why don't we make an exciting exploration of your backyard, your Tennessee River? And they said, that's dull. Trout and bass, no, all gray fish. And we said, no, here, let, let us look together at what this might be. And we got into the nuances of trout and, and bass and ordinary creatures, little tiny fish, darters and so on, that were living in the river. And I had the extraordinary moment of telling the board of directors of the Tennessee Aquarium that they might not know it, but they had in Tennessee 326 endemic na native species of fish. And in Massachusetts and all of New England, there was a total of 25. So I asked them, doesn't that suggest that you are living in a miraculous ecosystem here? And the explanation for it, which most of them did not know, which we, through our research and discussions with experts, came upon, was that the glacier 25,000 years ago, which came down through North America, stopped short of Tennessee and did not interrupt evolution. But it did interrupt everything north where the glacier had come. And that's why 25,000 years later, there's so few native fishes in New England and most of North, North America, in different parts of North America, very few. It's because of the glacier. They didn't know this, and that made a persuasive argument. And we ended up working with, this is, the, this is why it's fun, what I'm talking about. We ended up working with fishermen and with ecologists. And I would say that the fishermen were more interesting advisors to our design team than the ecologists, because they knew where the bass went to find its food. And that's why they caught them in championship tournaments, because they knew where the bass would go. They knew the territory. They knew the habitat and the environment and the behavior better than the ecologists. But you know, there's an irony in this too. There's a, another side dimension to it, which makes me a, perhaps a better collaborator. I don't know very much about biology. I've learned the hard way while doing these buildings and by working with that subject matter so that I've had to learn. But while I was growing up and I came to Andover, I never took a biology course. Flop Follinsby was my headmaster in Clement House down the road here, a biology teacher. I never took his course. I loved the man, he was a sweetheart, but I never took his course or any other biology course. I got to Harvard, and because I was majoring in architecture, they made me repeat a superb physics class that I had taken here with Jack Bars over in, in uh, what's it called, Pier? Pearson? Pearson, in the physics lab there. I took a terrific course with a great bearded old guy named Jack Bars, who was a wonderful physics teacher, and I got to Harvard, they wouldn't recognize that that was a legitimate base in physics for architects. So I had to take physics again. And the only reason that made sense was that the teacher was 
I believe, the best teacher I've ever had anywhere, a man named Gerald Holton. And so taking physics twice was not a disaster, but, <laughs> but not taking biology was a blunder. And because I've now spent my career doing something in which biology is fundamental. What's the most important thing that you've learned in your time from, from Andover and through your life as, a, as, a, as somebody, as a, as, a, as a working, creative? I would say the most, probably the most important thing I learned here was to be omnivorous in your appetites, to basically be interested in anything that might come your way and be open to new things that you hadn't thought about previously. And secondly, as I'm gonna be saying in my remarks tonight, I think the most important thing I learned here was to welcome failure. In other words, Profit from the exciting reality that to pursue an idea that you find interesting may not work. And when it doesn't work, don't be bothered by it. Pick yourself up and learn from it and move on. I feel that I learned that here and I continued doing that at Harvard. And I, even after Harvard, when things went wrong all through my 50 years of being an architect, Countless, countless projects, wonderful, exciting things, did not happen. I would say my percentage of, of wonderful projects completed was a maybe 20%, 2 out of 10. Projects that were advanced quite far before they were cancelled or, you might say, abandoned. And not being discouraged by that and moving on to the next thing. It's also true, of course, of filmmaking, but I learned that, I believe, starting here. Never and I, quit. And, and I, the other thing I'd say I, start, I learned starting here was the necessity, the compelling necessity of collaboration, of not taking yourself too seriously, and of acknowledging that even though you're the spokesperson for a lot of other people, it's those other people who make the music. You're only the lucky guy who conducts the orchestra. Every Quarter is produced by the Office of Communication at Phillips Academy in Andover and made possible by a grant from the Abbott Academy Fund, continuing Abbott's tradition of boldness, innovation, and caring. Like what you've heard? Spread the word. Share EQ with friends and connect with us using the hashtag EveryQuarterPodcast. You can also find us at podcast.andover.edu. Thanks for listening. I'm Jesse Wallner.